Welcome to the Game Changers podcast. We are your hosts, Associate Professor of Education and Enterprise, Philip Cummins, and prominent educational thought leader, Adriano Prado. The Game Changers podcast aims to not only put a spotlight on the innovative ideas shaping the landscape of 21st century schooling, but to enter into a deep dialogue with those brave pioneers, the true game changers in education those individuals that don't wait for permission, leaders in education who are actually courageous enough to make real change in their learning community as they foster the growth of each young person in their care to ultimately thrive in this new world environment. These are their stories. Imagine having one of the world's top educational science, neuroscience, life learning communicators in a conversation. And the starting point is a book that says stop talking. And he just can't stop talking. Jared Kearney Horvath is a neuroscientist. He's an award-winning educator. He is a wonderful, wonderful person. And he spends his life helping educators around the world to take the big step forward and up. He's our first guest in our series on the science of learning. I'm so excited. I can't wait. Let's go. Before we start our conversation with today's Game Changers guest, Phil, can you share with our audience a little bit about our Series 9 sponsor and their exciting new app, Voyage? Of course, Adriano. A School for Tomorrow is a globally recognised network that supports students, educators, school leaders and their communities to thrive in the new world environment. Voyage is a purpose-driven way for students to plan their future, experience life and thrive. They'll map and evaluate their progress on their journey as they build their character and the healthy habits that support it. Mentors and peers can check in on them and provide reflection and feedback as their crew. Best of all, it's free. Search Voyage on the Apple App Store or Google Play Store or visit the link in the description to find out more. Life's an adventure. Let's go. I'm really excited uh, about our very first guest for Series 9, Phil. But before we get into it, this series is the science of learning, and I would imagine that uh, the people of the Democratic Republic of Fitzroy have been conducting science on food like kale and tofu for quite some time now, my friend. Absolutely, absolutely. There's been strong non-GMO um, science done of here, course. of course, because we wouldn't we wouldn't do GMO here. No. But um, we have perfected the tofu. Mm -hmm. We have refined the bean. And of course, that is the coffee bean. And most, <laughs> most, most importantly, we know how to do a croissant and a cronut better than anybody else. Shout out to Loon and Moon right now. You now, know but, but, but Phil, you know, the, what I'm most concerned about is, is the poor chickpea. I mean, hummus has taken a back seat to kale in recent years, hasn't it? I mean, that used to be the that used to be the go-to for all you hipsters there in Fitzroy, right? Yeah, but, you know, can I give a further shout-out to, to my morning coffee supplier, Pony White, who've replaced the chickpea with the best okonomiyaki outside of Osaka. Anyway, oh enough of this gosh. nonsense, this is, Adriano. I'm sorry, Joe, that you have to listen to this. It's just nauseating, isn't it? I mean, seriously, they just... They just... Where do you live, Adriano? What's, what's I, up? I, 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 live, I live in Melbourne's West, so you don't mess with me in any way, shape or form, my friend. Anyway... We're going to get to our, to our guest, uh, and, and I'm really excited to have you on, Jared. Uh, we're going to ask you the question that we ask all of our guests. Tell us a little bit about your story and how you've gotten to where you are today. Yeah, absolutely. So I was originally a filmmaker back in the day, believe it or not. That was all I wanted to do was, was movies. And somehow that spun into teaching. Is I guess film stuff started to go slow, so I started teaching fell in love with that. And then that was when like the decade of the brain. So everyone was saying the brain is the future. And so I figured, all right, 
let me go learn about the brain. And then I can bring that back to teaching and say, hey, here's what all this stuff means. And that was only supposed to be about a year, but that's now kind of ballooned into 15 years of doing this stuff. And so I'm now to the point where I've spent the last decade essentially doing studying the science of learning, which simply put is just any field of research that has to do with learning on any level. So you've got psychology, neuroscience, artificial intelligence, behavioral economics, you name it, animal studies, doesn't matter. Anything that has to do with learning, my job now is to kind of synthesize all that together, come up with little principles, nuggets, and then translate that back to teachers and students. Because that's ultimately still my only passion is how do we teach? How do we learn? Bringing it back to schools and saying, here's the good stuff. Here's the nonsense. So really, it's, it's, I, I will be back in the classroom someday. It's just academia is a black hole. You get stuck in it, you keep going. So I want to push this a little bit further, Jared, because you've just gone straight into your work, which we're going to touch upon very soon. But I'm more interested in the journey. And, and, yeah. and our listeners are often really curious about guests, about were there moments where you were going through this discovery from the transition from a film industry into, <laughs> into an education industry? What was that moment or, or moments and why was that significant at the time? I think I reckon uh, looking back and, and I, every teacher will, will recognize this. It's that aha moment when, so you, you start by teaching a group of kids and you just think, cool, this is a job. I know stuff. They're going to learn it. Awesome. And then you start to get these moments. You build relationships with them, which is hilarious because you never really think about that, but they become 30 friends rather than students. And then you start to see these moments where they go, that's the problem. And it's not even necessarily the things you're teaching them. It almost translates back to their real life where now they're like, oh, that helps me solve this. Oh my goodness. Finally, I understand why I act in this manner. And those little kind of breakthrough moments, that's what I live for. That's, that's it now. So I think in, in that time, especially if you go back to making films, I had just, the last film I made was the biggest budget. I had somehow managed to secure the bit, most money I ever had, did all this work, huge production, total, total turd. It was the worst film. Like I, I, I hadn't made anything worse in my life. It was horrible. We had some lessons like that as well, man. Oh boy. <laughs> I think it happens to all of us. And I think you, you hit that, that moment where you get to decide, okay, do I really have what it takes? Right. And you were really, I'm I, personally, I'm just, in the depths and then i come into this new world and i start to see these things that make me feel good and make me feel like i'm doing something meaningful mm -hmm. that's one of the problems with film you make a film you really don't know what impact it has if you're in the theater you can see otherwise who knows but with students you're right front and center and so then you, you hit that moment where you go what do i really want to do what's more important in this world making another film or continuing to work with humans and it was just so much more fulfilling to go down that route than it was to go back to Hollywood. So there's no doubt there is, there's a correlation there because uh, both sectors are, are having an impact of sorts, aren't they? And, and, and a, and a really good, a really good uh, screenplay uh, or, or script uh, and a director understands the power of narrative and understands the power of story in connecting and transforming. And I mean, ultimately us in a classroom, the gifts that we can bring is the gift of story. And, yeah. and we know that story can heal. We know that story can uplift and it can inspire. So that's why I now want to move the conversation to the work, you know, the, the work that you're in right now. In, in your 2019 book, Stop Talking, Start Influencing, 12 Insights from Brain Science to Make uh, uh, Your Message Stick, you unpack 
12 principles of how people learn, regardless of their situation or circumstance, you fundamentally explore the notion of influence. And what I'm interested in is how can we start to influence a new narrative for a better normal of schooling? Yeah. A huge you like my segue question. there? No, I love that. Yeah, yeah. Huge question off the bat. Um, but this is fantastic. So I'll go back. If you go back to the book, the original title of the book was actually Stop Talking, Start Teaching. Mm-hmm. Um, it was the publisher who said, let's go broader. Let's go bigger than teaching. And at the end of the day, I, I debated him, but I, I kind of came in alignment because I realized, yeah, teaching is influence. Influence is teaching. What we're trying to do is is deeply understand another human being, how they work, how they think, so that we can inspire them to think and work differently. And and I'll, I'll since we're talking science of learning, I'll make this point clear right off the outset, because it's probably important for everyone to hear this once. Every human being in the world learns in exactly the same way. There is no difference. And so far as we can tell, we haven't changed in 150,000 years. Now that statement seems it can confuse some people. So I'll clarify, we want different input points. We like different methodologies. We, we all resonate with different topics or themes or curricular tasks. That's not at stake. But the process itself of learning is exactly the same. Think about it the same way as eating. We all eat different foods, but we all digest the same way. We all breathe different things. Some people smoke, some people, whatever it is, but we all breathe. The the process of inhalation and exhalation is the same for all people. So it's the same thing with learning. The more you start to recognize that there is a basic process pattern of learning, once you get that pattern, that is essentially the key of influence. When you know what the steps are that people go through in order to learn something, once you can walk people through that, that becomes the nugget of science of learning where now we can start to change. How do we think? How do we move? And if we bring it back then to that major idea you were talking about, about narrative, how do we think about narrative as school? One of the key ways to change, because there's a massive narrative in education right now, and it's not the narrative anyone has chosen. Most teachers don't go into schools in order for kids to get a job, but believe it or not, that is the narrative we're working under that schools are here to get kids into plugged into the economic system. That's why if you look at any article written in the newspaper, what's the purpose of school to help prepare kids for 21st century careers, it's just everywhere. If we want to rewrite that narrative, step one is just pure awareness. The more we recognize the process, what are we currently thinking? Now we can use that process to push through and start to build a new narrative. So how does learning work? Once we get that locked down, then we can really start to push. We can find our little pressure points and say, all right, we're at this moment, let's change this. We're at this moment, let's change this. Does that kind of make sense? Yeah, of course. I, I would also hope that uh, the, the role of schooling is also for um, a social construct as well, not just an economic one. Uh, You'd think uh, you know, so. You, you would hope. Yeah. Uh, I mean, through an industrial age, there definitely was a massive emphasis on the, uh, the economic thing, particularly in countries that are developing and, and growing and expanding. But um, there is a big influence now, isn't there, on, on the social and the cultural elements of of our formation and developing that way. And Adriana, you know, we, we need to add in, in, into that just that that personal commitment that we have to individuals, that individuals are, are not there simply to fill a spot in society or to fill a spot in the economy, but that that society and that culture and that economy are also there to serve them so that we, we, we owe a moral obligation to serve the development of 
the civic and the performance and the moral character of individuals so that they can become the best people that they can be. There is a symbiotic nature to that. It is about interdependence. You know, it's not, it's not a sausage factory. Um, so that's what I want to touch on now, Phil, this, this, um, this notion of service in, in response to what, Jared, you just mentioned there uh, around influence. We know that systems leaders and school leaders have enormous influence in the direction of education in, in, in our country and, and across the globe. Yeah. You speak about having a deeper understanding about the sign of our times and the patterns associated to those sign of our times to, to be able to better inform us in, in developing learning and, and learning opportunities that can help people, young people in particular, grow and achieve and be successful. What are some ways, though, that we can influence our system leaders, our school principals, to have the courage to step outside of their binary thinking and the status quo into a space that might be unfamiliar initially or uncertain, but also holds much hope and promise? Another big question. I'm loving this. So I, th I think, and I'm going to have to step kind of beyond the science sure. of learning more into kind of social theory now. But I think step number one is um, social comparison, is the more clear examples we have of schools or leaders stepping out and succeeding, the more likely other people are to join it. No one wants to be the first person to dive into the pool, but once one person's in with their clothes on, another person will go and then hundreds will go. So there is going to be this tipping point where if we can get enough people to do a certain thing or move a certain way, you'll see this just mass shift. And a lot of people will start doing it. So it's at this point, it's, can we build it with small enough numbers of schools? I always say this, this is kind of a, an interesting thing. So one of the biggest issues, and I'm, I promise I'll come back to that idea of moving leaders. I'm just thinking about this out loud as I go. One of the biggest issues we have. So the thing driving a narrative is largely the context, the tools you use, whatever tool you use, love it or hate it. You have to adopt the worldview of that tool. That's simply how tools work. As soon as you start using a computer, you start to think like a computer. So in education, the primary tool we use is standardized assessment. That is the end-all be-all tool. And because we use that tool, we have to now adopt the worldview of that tool. This is why the world by and large thinks the entire purpose of school is to reify, quantify, rank, sort out kids. Because that's what we're telling the world we're doing. The more we use this tool, the more we're saying, yeah, this is just a ranking mechanism. This is just a sorting device. It's a productivity focus. Yeah. And, and, and the joke is, is no teacher wants it. Well, a, a few I'm sure are, but collectively we don't really love it. But so long as we keep using the tool, it's real hard to change the underlying narrative. So I always said, if you ever got 50 principals from 50 of the biggest schools around Australia to stand on the stage simultaneously and say, starting next year, we're not going to do standardized tests anymore. No more. It's just not happening. I promise you, if you get those 50, thousands others will just join in. If you have 40, nope, it's just going to be them. If you had 20, nope, it's just going to be them. You give me 50 or more, watch when thousands of schools, pretty much all schools will say, yep, we're on board, no more standardized tests. And the world will adapt to it. The point is we need that threshold. We need that social yeah. marker that shows enough people have done it, are doing it, that I'm not just going to be left out on in the wind here. Yeah. And, 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 you know, Jared, we're at School for Tomorrow and at, at Circle, our research institute, we've been working on that theory now for the past decade in particular, starting to think, help people to think about an education for character, yeah. um, uh, which, you know, 10, 11 years ago, when we started talking about it with people and they're going, well, why would you 
why would you do that? You know, what, what's that about? And that's an education for characters fundamentally about the realisation of everything we know about all of those sciences that you mentioned earlier coming together yeah. to talk about the intentionally purposeful design and delivery of an education for the people to have the character competency and wellness that they will need to thrive in the world today. And we've, we've always gone about thinking about, well, who are the influential people around this? Because, you know, when you look at the other reform movements in this area in the UK in the 1990s and then Australia, with values education in the early 2000s, they made for really nice posters on the wall in the library, but it didn't seep into classroom practice. Teachers just looked at them and went, oh, yeah. And then another thing, and then just carried along. You know, yeah. you can look at that with uh, curriculum reform, the attempts to embed key capabilities into uh, curriculum and, and general competencies and so on, again, over the last 30 years. And people just see these things as add-ons. So I, I guess, look, my first question to you is, how do we get people to see that the sort of stuff that you communicate about to them is inherent to everything that they do and it's not just an add-on? Yeah, kind of playing with that whole theme. There's, I think it was Thomas Jefferson. I've, God help me if I'm wrong, because someone's going to make fun of me here. But he said, the purpose of education, the purpose of a public education back in the day, isn't to serve the public, it's to create the public. And so we start to see that, yeah, our purpose here is this very big, we are building the next generation, in which case, values all these concepts should be first and foremost in our thinking as to why are we here? What are we actually building? What function are we serving here? And start to bring it forward. And I think you're right. We start to see hints of this in like the C21 movements, in the future competency stuff. But what you'll see, and this is happening in a couple of states in Australia now, they're moving into this kind of more competencies, values-based model but they're doing it through the exact same tool we've always been using. And the question they keep asking is, how are we going to standardize and assess this at the end? How are we going to rank kids on? How are we going to measure it? And that's, and it's, and I, I got no problem with measuring things that are worth measuring. Mm -hmm. But the trick here is, is remember the tool drives the worldview. So, so long as we continue to use the tool of ranking and measuring at the end, it doesn't matter, man. You can make school about creativity. You can make it about, morality you can make it about science it doesn't matter the tool itself is the thing that's driving this narrative and if you really want to shift a change the tool but this is where it becomes important how do we get people to recognize this and start to embed this i go back to that knowledge thing the only like i can't tell you how many schools i've worked with where there will be about a 10 percent group of teachers there who are really excited about the science of learning and 90 percent who are like dang, here we go, another thing we've got to do. But once they start learning it and they recognize that it's foundations, it's not telling you how to teach. There's nothing in these foundations that say, because we learn like this, you must teach like this. All it does is give you bigger insight into who you are, who your students are, why that thing you used to do doesn't work, why this thing does work. Those insights are the thing that empower you to start to say, hey, wait a second, let's keep playing. So for whatever reason, I believe it's when we get more knowledge, more experience of these kind of deeper processes. And we, we kind of lose that fear of here's another person telling me how to teach. Oh, here's another person redoing school. No, nothing about you, nothing about your school has to change. Just figuring out how people learn 
I think this is kind of a good point to hit too, especially if we're doing a theme on science of learning is there is a difference between learning and teaching. There is a massive difference. I, you could be the best teacher in the world and have no clue about learning and you can know everything about learning and be an absolutely trash. Well, Jared, Jared, this is a point that I think we've reached in Australian education in particular right now, because we have assiduously taken on the research we have assiduously um, um, professionalized curriculum. We've we've done you know what what Party Salberg and, and his mates would call you know we've 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 sat at the temple of the germ movement, the global educational reform movement. We've defined everything backwards. Our curriculum are full of dot points, and and we we've got um, uh, appraisal regimes. We've got all of that sort of thing. We've also got declining outcomes because at the same time as doing all this teaching stuff and largely administration stuff and tidying stuff and organising stuff, our rates of student engagement have plummeted. And you talk to kids and they will tell you about fear and anxiety and a lack of trust and a lack of agency. How are we going to build engagement? How are we going to build trust? How are we going to build agency um, to help people to grow and achieve? Because, you know, we can keep doing this hamster wheel but we're, we're missing the point here. Yeah. We're not focusing on the things that kids need to grow, to make progress, to achieve and, and to really succeed in the world. It's interesting. There's a, there's a concept in architecture called form follows function. And this came with the invention of the, yeah. there you go. It's, it's the skyscraper. Yeah, that's Don't it. Worry. Yeah, that's it. That, well, that's it. Son of an architect, mate. I, I oh, so you love stuff. it. So it's, yeah, this yeah. is me. I'm Frank Lloyd Wright, born and bred, but that was Sullivan. So it was his teacher. Yeah. yeah. But he comes out and it makes sense. It's everyone is so focused on what we're doing. How are we doing it? Are we teaching the right things? In what manner are we doing it? Which is awesome, but that's all form. Very rarely do we stop to ask, for what reason are we doing these? And if you do, you start to see maybe all these debates we're having about form. If we're really clear on the function, we won't have to spend all of our time debating and refining form because we're really locking in on, okay, what do we really truly hope to achieve? Now, anything we do, any form we make, we have a, a nice kind of goalpost to market against. Are we helping kids take agency? Are we helping kids uh, feel more uh, at peace with themselves and who they are? And so if you take this, I think what's interesting about learning is on one aspect, yes, the more we learn it as teachers, the better we can teach or the more agentic we'll be in our teaching. We'll have better decision-making strategies. We'll kind of interpret situations better. But more importantly, we'll be able to teach that to students. We'll be able to give them the learning thing. And that's what I say at the end of the day, if you truly want a future-proof skill or one skill that students need to learn, it's the learning process. They need to be able to leave school with the ability to run their own learning, have agency over their own thinking. What is the learning process? And because it's the same for all of us, it's a teachable thing. We can all figure it out. And that's where I think we can get students more agency. The more they we recognize as teachers, we have a tendency to Trojan horse learning in. I'm going to do some tasks and activities and hopefully you get why I'm doing this. And science of learning says, no, just strip away the curtain and say, the reason we're starting class with a quiz is because learning happens this way. The reason we're doing this now is because learning happens like this. The more they recognize it, that's where I think they can start to find agency. Doesn't really address the stress question, but at least you can get aspects of why does stress impact your thinking? Where do, do emotions play in? The more, the more knowledge you have of yourself, there's where agency comes from. That's where more power comes from. Yeah, sure, sure. And, and look, the stress anxiety thing is a broader 
as a, as a broader social context. And perhaps another time we can talk about, you know, particularly Jonathan Haidt's research uh, around, you know, the advent of smartphones and, and social media and the devastating effect it's having on the mental health of people under the age of 30 in particular. And yep. dare I say it, spreading spreading forces around the world that are not on the on, they're not on the good side they're on they're on the evil side in terms mm-hmm. of us thinking about what inspires people to be at their best because i don't i don't think the, the 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 phone technology that we've got is honoring that as as much as it should anyway that's enough of that yeah. rant for the moment i'm interested to go back to the 10 to 90 um, observation that you give earlier because i think that the, there's a change piece in that too there's a change appetite piece um and, you know, within that 10%, you know, you've got to discern the 5% who will just jump on board to anything new because yeah. they love new stuff uh, and who, you know, that's great. Um, but then you need to find the early influences, don't you? The ones who are really going to get in there and, and see the value in that. Stuck in the 90% are the same people who are the critics, aren't they? In our work, we often call them the the, the, the grumpy Muppets because they're like Waldorf and Statler from the Muppets. You know, they sit up and look down imperiously <laughs> and rah, 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 crit- criticise. Oh, by the way, there's a whole series of audiences just switched off who have no idea what the Muppets are. But anyway, we'll keep that's going. All right. That's all right. That's all right. Yeah, just look it up. Look it. Look it up on YouTube. Look it up on YouTube. Um, you'll also find Jared on YouTube doing lots of great things on there too. Um, those critics will tell us that neuroscience is a reductionist view that overemphasizes the role of the brain at the expense of a holistic understanding of cultural life based on interpretation and empathy. Or they will tell us it's a determinist view that our neurological inheritance sets us on a path that is unchangeable. Now, what you start to get into, of course, is not just um, fear of change and, and people who are inherently conservative by nature, but then you start to get into that whole ideological debate about biological determinism versus social construction that is going on in our world all over the place. We believe that a neuroscience perspective recognises that each person constitutes an intricate system that operates at neural cognitive social levels with multiple interactions. What are the top implications that neuroscience has for education and the notion of a continuous learner and unlearner. How can we, what, what, what are the key messages that we need to be getting across to the people who are teaching our children? I would say that uh, the detractors, the ones who are saying, oh, it's reductionist, oh, it makes no sense. They're 100% correct. Neuroscience has absolutely nothing to teach us about teaching. And that's, it took me 10 years to learn that. Neuroscience, how the brain works, is way too far removed from the practical day-to-day of what I do with my students to be of any use. And so for you, congratulations. So does that mean it's pointless? Absolutely not. Notice the science of learning isn't called the neuroscience of learning. Neuroscience is one aspect of the broader concept of what learning is. So what you start to see is neuroscience will never tell us how to teach or, or, or what's going on. What it will do is it will help us start to recognize mechanisms and patterns. But believe it or not, if you took a 28-hour master's course with me, 28 hours, exactly half of one of those lessons is going to be about the brain. The rest is going to be about concepts of cognitive psychology, of learning, and that's where learning really comes in. So you're absolutely right. I would also say you probably don't know how neuroscience is really working now. Believe it or not, we started as a very reductionist science. 
But now we recognize, and most of us, I'd say probably 95% of us recognize, there's no answers in the brain. It's just a reflection of psychology. So you have to deal with behaviors. You have to deal with human beings. And when we talk about concepts of free will and stuff, again, outside of maybe the Neil deGrasse Tysons of the world, there's no real neuroscientist, no real researcher who doesn't believe in free will and us. So there's a concept called emergence now, which says the reason we've never found you in your brain or consciousness in your brain is because you don't exist in your brain. Guess what? You don't, know, you don't exist in your heart either, and you don't exist in your stomach, and you don't exist in your toes. You're not in any of this. You are of all of this. You emerge through the interaction of all these different systems, and you are a unique, quantitatively different thing to all of this. So from there, you can start to say, okay, so do we focus all of our thinking and learning on just that emergent property of the student? And you go, yeah, that is totally fine. That's what we've done forever. But once you can start to tap into the bits and pieces, now you can start to play and say, okay, how do these pieces fit together? If I tweak one, how does that change the emergent you? If we play with another, how does that change the emergent you? So I think the biggest theme we can learn from neuroscience when it comes to teaching is nothing. Neuroscience will never tell you how to teach. The biggest theme we can learn from neuroscience when it comes to education broadly is A, every human being learns the same, but B, every human being is very different. We are unique emergent properties of our systems and our contexts. And so because that is a qualitatively unique thing, we've got to think about all those different levels. Everything is going to play into us. It's not just our brain. It's not just where we grew up. It's not just who our parents are. It's all of that stuff. So on one hand, we're all exactly the same. And on the other hand, none of us are the same. And that's so there's so much cool. in what you're sharing with us and our audience, Jared, around behavior uh, and, and, and the patterns associated to those behaviors and the different things that might influence us at, at different points of our own journey of discovery. I, I love this conversation that you're having with Phil in this particular space. And um, you wouldn't be the only neuroscientist would say, that would also talk about the jury being out when it comes to teaching uh, <laughs> and, and its relationship there. But, you know, teaching has an art to it. We, we started this conversation around narrative and story, which is often deeply human in our context because it's humans telling those stories. They're living those stories, whether it's about place, whether it's about other, whether it's about God, whatever it might be. Uh, we're the ones sharing that. So there's this deep inherent curiosity in our behaviour as humans on, on, a, on a regular basis. We're always looking to discover or prod or, or un unpack or, you know, reveal something new, whether it's about ourselves, whether it's about the people we encounter or, or the places we encounter. What I think our, our, our audience would be really interested in then is taking this science of learning in the space of neuroscience and seeing how we can actually apply learning sciences in our classroom, in a real context. So could you maybe give our audience an example of how you would then foster an applied culture of this deep curiosity, of this deep discovering in our schools? Yeah, so you've got, so I've, I've got kind of two angles I go with that. One, we'll, we'll just start with just an applied example, just so people can see how this works. So in your brain, your silent reading voice is processed exactly the same way as an out loud speaking voice. So when you're reading, anytime you hear your thinking voice, your brain is processing that as though you were saying the words, simply listening to them coming back into your brain. So just like you can't listen to two kids yell at you at the same time, it turns out neither can you read or listen to yourself think while listening to somebody else speak. 
simultaneously. The two don't work. So we know this in the brain as just a hard bottleneck. Now, again, this doesn't tell us anything about teaching. It just says you can't do this stuff. Now you start to step it up into psychology, into education, and you start to say, okay, what are the boundaries? What does this mean for us? And you start to get ideas on, well, how do I do handouts? How do I do PowerPoint slides? What does this mean for note-taking in my classroom? So you see the neuroscience doesn't tell us anything about teaching, but it gives us a principle. If we know the brain works in this way, now you get to start translating it into education and say, so what does that mean about you, your techniques, your students, what you're doing? So that's kind of just a, an explicit demonstration of how we can draw a line from one to the other. But again, notice it's not a direct line. It's now yeah. you get to do your job. But I think if you go broader, an interesting thing about neuroscience is this, is we found that the, the brain does think in narratives. That's mm -hmm. its natural pattern. So that's why if you watch a TV show, you'll remember that much better than if you just read a list of facts, largely because in order for something to be a narrative, a story, it has to have a physical thrust. Characters have to do things because they were compelled to do them. We need to know the reasoning, cause and effect, and it has to have a psychological thrust. Characters. So, have to so the stories that we tell ourselves then are true, right? They Oh, they absolutely <laughs> are. At the yeah. end of the day, because this is, this is, the way the brain works is primarily on stories. What you start to recognize is the stories you tell. The brain doesn't just like those. The brain then molds itself around those stories. And so what starts to happen is our stories that make up our worldview feed back into our brain and start to change how we process every single sense that comes in, every signal that comes in. So when I say, and this is going to sound like I'm being metaphorical, I'm not. When Phil talks about having a coffee, I will literally taste something very different than he does when he talks about coffee. When we both listen to somebody tell us the exact same words, we will both literally hear two different things. And I'm not talking about interpretation. I'm talking from the moment that sound hits the first cells in our ear, mine will vibrate differently to his, depending upon, upon our stories, our narratives that we're using to make sense of the world. So you start to see this, this idea of narrative and story. It's, it's not just cool. It's cool that the brain thinks that way, but that's not just for learning. That's not just for input. The brain works that way from the bottom up, top down, left, right, center. So everything boils back down to narratives. Take science just as a whole. Everyone says, oh, science is really cool because it's super objective and we do all this research. We, we do do research, but take any kid who's had to go through science. When you're writing a scientific paper, the methods and results section are easy. That's the objective stuff. That's the, yeah, here's what I did. Here's what I found. The part everyone struggles with is the introduction and the discussion. Why? Because that's where you have to weave a narrative. Mm -hmm. Science is just narrative weaving. All we're doing is telling you, here's the story of how the world works. And so even at the, what we call the most math is exactly the same. Even what we call the most objective things humans do if you really strip it back down, it's just narrative. It's cause and effect, emotional valence. So these stories, they're not just, they don't help us organize the world, but they do. They don't just help us learn. They do. They literally dictate how we see, hear, smell, feel, taste the world. So our so, culture, we, if you do research with, with Northern Aboriginals, compare that to a group of uh, uh, college students at Unimelb right now, they don't memorize the same. They don't touch things the same. They don't, it's, there, we're in two very different worlds. It's because we have two very different stories. And that's, sure. I think, the power of this narrative stuff. There's so much in what you're sharing with us that's 
about the strength of relationships in schools, the exchange that goes on within schools and the character apprenticeship between the teacher and the student and the peer relationships that are formed and, and how much that, that can influence uh, or impact upon our own narratives uh, in, in positive ways or even negative ways. And, and part of that formation, it, it, it kind of lends me to think that developing then really powerful reflective habits in young people is going to be really fundamental for them to better understand these stories that not only they're telling themselves, but they're hearing uh, to, to navigate this world and make sense of this world, the world with inside of themselves, but of course, the world and the world around them. We also know that the Australian curriculum has an emphasis now on some general capabilities yeah. and capabilities around, you know, critical and creative thinking amongst many others. And, and that notion of critical and creative thinking involves students thinking more broadly or developing a, a, a um, using knowledge, skills, decisions and habits around reasoning and around logic, around resourcefulness, around their imagination or even self-regulation. Uh, and, and innovation in all kinds of learning areas in a school, not only in the school, but life beyond school. Yeah. What I'm interested in is that, of course, we were talking about measurement before and the explicit assessment then of things like that. And that's kind of a metacognition type uh, uh, space as well, that kind of uh, critical thinking, creative thinking. How, though, can we in our schools then better position and heroing, thinking about thinking and reflective strategies to empower young people and equip them then with the necessary kind of uh, skills to thrive in this world. Yeah. And I, I think there's kind of two angles from that. The first and foremost is you, you are explicit and practiced, explicit and practiced mm -hmm. thinking, critical thinking, creativity. If we want to boil those down to kind of processes or skills, they're going to be no different than any other skill. You, just like any other skill, I've got to hear the words. I've got to see it in action. I've got to do it dozens of times before it becomes sensical to me. So step one, we can't just assume these things will happen. Like fingers crossed, everyone's going to become creative and they will, it will emerge out of just general learning. It will happen anyway. But if we want to focus on it, then focus on it. That's part and parcel. It's just like transfer. Everyone is interested in kids transferring their learning between contexts. Cool. Make that part of everything we do every day. Ask a transfer question at the end of every lesson. Kids should be so sick of you saying transfer that they're so aware of this process and what it looks like and how we walk through it every day that they just start to take it on board. So we make it explicit and we make it practiced. Beyond that, then we recognize, and I think this kind of plays back into that transfer issue, oddly enough, is even though there are basic strategies or patterns we can use for these different competencies, they can't always be used at will. Mm -hmm. So what will start to happen is you'll say, take something like, um, creativity. I'm ridiculously creative when I am dissecting a brain. Um, put me in a business school right now. I won't be creative at all. And it's not because I don't have the skill or the knowledge of how to apply that skill. It's because I don't have the knowledge yet. So you'll start to see a lot of these higher order competencies, although they have patterns and we can directly teach those, not every kid in every subject is going to be ready to apply those because we have to start back at the beginning and say, okay, cool, let's build up enough of a knowledge base where now we can start to play with these bigger skills. So a trick to recognize here is a lot of people say, well, 
these skills don't exist. No, they, they exist just fine. It's, we have to just recognize that I can't always apply them until I'm at the right stage of the learning journey to start to really bring them in and use them. And the more, again, explicit I, you are with me about how does all of this work? What is creative thinking? The more easily I can kind of recognize in my own process. Yeah, I'm ready to be tackling that, or I don't know enough to even, and that's meta-awareness. I know I'm not enough. I don't know near enough to be creative in business. That's mm -hmm. meta-awareness. I know how the process works. I know who I am. Off I go. And so just to kind of demonstrate, I think it's worthwhile for people to see this is take critical thinking. I guarantee you everyone listening to this right now has the skill of critical thinking. You, you wouldn't have gotten this far in your life if you didn't. Congratulations. So I'm just going to tell you a quick story from neuroscience. Uh, so a paper was published recently that demonstrated that when neutrinos in the left medial temporal lobe started to spin in a clockwise fashion, this generated a radio signal detectable by bold MRI recordings. So what I want you to do is use your critical thinking now and tell me what methodologically went wrong with that research. Or if it's accurate, what does that suggest about how we've been analyzing MRI data for the last three decades? So go ahead, critically think now. You'll notice you can't do it. Why is it because you don't have the skill of critical thinking and maybe we need to take more classes on that? No, you've got the skill. In this instance, you simply don't have the knowledge yet. There is a certain process we have to go through of gathering, of understanding certain concepts before we can start to use these higher order skills. That's why we call them higher order on this lower order stuff. Mm -hmm. So it's just a recognition of kind of how the patterns work. And, and the idea that, yeah, we can be explicit in practice with the higher order skill. And, 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 Jared, and Jared, so much of the debate around pedagogies that plays themselves, that, that plays out in the public media and online, which, again, gets caught up in these sort of ideological culture wars, fails to recognise that there is a scope and sequence to learning and certain approaches work best at that spot and then other approaches tie in and so the idea that it's all about explicit instruction or the idea that it's never about inquiry no 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 i want to i want to flip for a moment because um just to talk about narrative if i can just the, yeah. the the final questions i want to ask you um today before i hand over to adriano and and he wraps up um talking with a group of english educators last night really good decent earnest educators at a at a very fine school and it's really clear that within the group, there's a group of them who are very good at that meta stuff, that are very good at that narrative stuff. And can, if you like, commentate the narrative of the game of learning that they're playing with the kids. And so therefore they can comment on this, this, and this, and they can do the behavioral stuff and they can do the learning stuff, et cetera. And yet then, and you know, if we we're in a rugby analogy, they're like the back line, they're standing back and observing and they can see the plays and so on. Yeah. And then there are the forwards who just get there stuck into it and they've got their heads down in the mud and in the in the in 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 the dust and the and the intensity of the moment. And they don't have that in uh, that instinctive meta thing going on. How do we help those who don't have that meta thing going on to find that meta thing and to learn and to and to play with that? It, it, it's same as everything else. It's, it's going to boil down to being explicit and, and, and knowledge is I think a lot of people don't recognize that learning is a predictable process that we now have enough knowledge and understanding to say, yep, I can, I know what's going to happen next. And I think a lot of people still think it's a black box, like a magic thing that it, everyone's slightly different. How do you learn? Who knows? I'm just going to try my best. Once you get explicit with it and you start to recognize, wait a second, learning is a process and you start diving into the literature on what is that process, 
the number one thing I hear teachers say when we start talking about science of learning is, why didn't they teach me this at uni? Like this is, <laughs> this just helps me clarify all the things they were telling me to do. Now, why didn't they tell us this? And it could be that, you know, we have other things to focus on or we weren't ready to do it. Who knows why? But so that's what I'd say is if you're kind of that front line and you're in the nitty gritty and you want to be aware, get the language first. Well, you, in order to be aware, to get the meta-awareness, you need to have the language, the concepts. So dive into the science of learning. What is it? There are a couple of good books I can recommend that will start to walk you through the process. And once you start to get the language, the concepts, that's when you can start stepping back and saying, I'm recognizing the patterns. Is that why when I did this, I had this outcome? So it's all just about being explicit and recognizing that it's not a black box. It is a thing. We know it. And once you got that language and that knowledge, you'll start seeing it everywhere. There's a piece around being and becoming, isn't there? There's a piece about where we are today and a piece about where we're going. And, and this ties in with all of the emergence stuff that you were talking about um, yeah. earlier. And I love that, you know, if there's one concept I want anybody, everybody to take away from this conversation we've had, it's that concept of emergence. As we get older and we get closer to that end point, whatever that end point is, we become even more aware and perhaps poignant about the gap between being and becoming. What's your poignancy right now? Where are you on your, on your stage of learning? Where, where are you on your journey? What's, what's happening in your narrative? What are you looking at at the moment and being perhaps just a little wistful about? Uh, <laughs> I've, I've started to realize that I have devoted a lot, a lot, a lot of my time to understanding ethereal concepts to the detriment of doing practical work. And that's so I'm, I'm at the stage right now where <laughs> my next level of becoming has to be practical. I have to get back to the earth. I stupid example, but not at all. So I, I live down in safety beach. And so this is a real working class. Everyone on my block is tradies. And we had that massive windstorm a, a little while back. And during that storm, my neighbor's brick wall blew down into the street, the entire brick wall in front of his house gone by this wind. And I'm sitting there looking at this thinking, damn, if that was me, who would I call? Um, that's probably going to say, I'm probably, I'm busy. I'm not even going to call anyone until December. So by next year, I will have hired someone to build that wall. The very next day, every single person on my street was out there measuring, aligning, doing this, doing that. They rebuilt that wall in about three days. I, I don't even know where you buy bricks let alone how to actually build a dang wall. And watching that, that just reminded me that I, 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 it's awesome to get mental. It's awesome to, to think and be academic. And I've been doing that for a big chunk of my life, but I, the, my growth, my evolution has to be doing something because it's only there where I'm going to start to feel fulfillment. There's really nothing I have to show for my life. I got a couple of books out there, which is really neat, um, but I've never built a wall. I can't walk by something and say, Hey kid, that's my blood, sweat, and tears in that thing over there. So that's where I think I'm, I'm at this weird stage a, in my life where I'm thinking, how do I get back to earth? Isn't that interesting? We started, we, we started with Prospero and the Tempest and we, we've sort of reached um, Hamlet and, and now we're almost contemplating Lear. So I, with, the, with the thought of King Lear wandering on the heath, I'm going to hand over to um, my silverhead friend to, uh, to finish the conversation. It's been a fascinating conversation, Jared, and we've very much appreciated your, your time, uh, energy, and sharing so much of your work 
over a long period of time with our audience today. And I know how much work you do with schools, particularly in this country, in, in supporting their growth and understanding of their own capacity and, and the value of thinking and, and the value of science uh, and, and the art of, of teaching. It's interesting that you shared at the end there, the wall. I can recall a, a time when I was on a, a cultural language immersion with a group of students to China. And it was the first time I encountered the Great Wall. And the night before was a torrential rain. We were camping out underneath the wall and, and it was torrential rain. I had water everywhere in, in, in my tent. I thought, this is ridiculous. I can't believe I'm not staying in a cabin. I can't believe I'm doing this. Uh, you know, so precious. And uh, anyway, the next day though, crystal blue sky, lush, you know, forest around the wall. I mean, it was the most idyllic moment to be on that wall. And, and I stopped and paused and thought, these people built something significant. It's something that can be seen, you know, from space. It's something that millions of people every year pilgrimage towards to experience and encounter. There's something about our capacity as humans to tap into our cathedral thinking, our blue sky thinking, and then realize it through being a solution architect of some sorts, you know, and, and, and seeing it tangible in front of us. I don't want you to dismiss the value that you bring as not being seen or being tangible. You know, uh, you played that down a little bit towards the end there because yes, you may not have built a wall, but you've built an understanding about our possibility through our relational behaviors and how we interact with self, place and the other. So I just want to say thank you very much for sharing uh, what you have built over a long period of time with our audience today. And uh, we continue to look forward to opportunities to engage with you in the future. Oh, thank, thank you. you. And always thank you guys for having me on. Always happy to keep chatting if you ever want to again. Game Changers is a podcast for those who want to change the game of school. Produced by Oliver Cummins for Orbital Productions and powered by our School for Tomorrow, Game Changers is available on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Play and SoundCloud. Tell your friends and don't forget to subscribe. Let's go.